309, Chapter 9. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 309, Vacation, All I Ever Wanted. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. And links to all of our sponsors can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. Please visit them as their support for the show is one of the things that keeps it free for you. Well, how goes it? Are you all on vacation for the summer in late July and early August 2013? I am. And therefore, there will not be a whole lot of extra to your chapters for the next couple of weeks. Be that as it may, however, we have chapter nine this week of the Age of Innocence. And the only really crafty news for this week is just reminders. This full week, this last full week of the month of July is your last chance to sign up for the Catherine Barbosa Pendant Raffle. That is on the show notes. And Heatherly's gorgeous Bleak House sock that is available to you via the link at the top of the show notes. You'll be able to enter for the giveaway to Amy's book as well as get your copy of Heatherly's uh, Yarnyenta's pattern. Also my Mobius cowl that I made for my sister. That pattern is up. And yes, I am Sammy on Knit Companion. God, I love Knit Companion. It's just making my life so much easier. If you haven't discovered it yet, or if you have to beg, borrow, or steal an iPad in order to use Knit Companion, please do at some point find a chance where you can play with one. It is really a marvelous thing. So all those goodies and lots and lots of links from today's chapter are all available to you on the show notes at craftlit.com for episode 309. And so, Age of Innocence, we have slowly been getting the picture that Ellen Alinska is intriguing. And part of that intriguingness, to coin a term, is Newland's reaction to her. This is a guy who has been completely content to be raised in and be a part of and be a representative of a very specific cross-section, a very specific class of New York City in the 1860s and 1870s. And all of a sudden, this one person is entering his world and it's not so dramatic as turning his turning it on its ear or anything like that, but it's, it's certainly kind of putting a wedge into some cracks that may have been there for Newland before. And then Ellen kind of pounds them with a sledgehammer. 
And that's going to continue for a while. But the cracks really start to show in this chapter, chapter 9. You may recall that at the end of chapter 8, Ellen did something completely surprising. She put her hand out and said to Archer, five o'clock then, when there had been no discussion or agreement upon the idea that he would come to visit her. But come he will, and this is the chapter when that meeting takes place. Now you will hear that Ellen Olenska lives on West 23rd Street. And in case you've never been in New York or to New York or visited New York or paid attention to the New York cross street thing, the West side is different from the East side. Now you may have heard of the Upper West Side, Seinfeld Country, Upper East Side, Bonfire of the Vanities side, and that's all actually quite scarily accurate. But once you get below Central Park, things get really weird because then you have the East Village, which is rent country, or you get the West Village, which is kind of old school Kerouac and Ginsburg, or or even a Rear Window. That's that's the West Side, um, but now it's it's more um, well where I used to live on Christopher Street between Bleecker and Bedford. Uh, it was kind of gay bar central, and it it turned out to be a fabulously safe place for a young-ish woman to live. So the the villages of New York, even though you really only ever hear of the East Village and the West Village, the villages of New York are very distinct and kind of tribal. And it was no different when Edith Wharton was around and growing up. And so you're going to hear about Alan Olenska being on West 23rd Street. Well, that's Chelsea. That was very artsy at the time, uh, a little on the rundown side, but you'll hear Newland Archer make a very interesting comment about how the humanities are housed in this country. And of course, because we don't have any kind of a, a regal system in this country, we don't have a, uh, at least we don't, we don't have a classed system that is acknowledged. And as a consequence, we don't have a system of patronage the way that one might in Renaissance Italy or England during the Regency period or anything like that, because we don't have an acknowledged classed society, our humanities people are pretty much left to the whims of the market. And that can be tragic for those in the humanities. And you will hear that in this chapter. And of course, it's rather wonderful for Edith Wharton to be making this comment because she was loaded with money but she's a writer, and so she she had to have known. She had to have seen both sides of that coin. So that's kind of delicious and marvelous. You will also hear, as a product of Newland's upbringing, him trying to piece together Italian. But unlike the way that, say, I would piece together Italian or Spanish or French, all languages that I either had some contact with or took classes in, for me, as in the case of visiting Italy when I was in my 20s, I... Uh, I took my cassette tape Italian, which was, I was able to remember mostly articles and nouns, and that was pretty much it. And my high school and first year of college Spanish, where I had all my verbs, I was able to piece together between those two languages, and I'm pretty sure some French from my senior year of high school thrown in there, I was able to piece together enough 
that the cute guys at the cheese shop could understand me, laugh at me, sure, but understand me enough to give me directions and let me know which bus or train to take in order to get where I wanted to go. Well, Newland doesn't have to fall back on high school Spanish or, you know, traveler's Italian. Instead, he goes to Dante and Petrarch. And the great part of it is his Italian is pretty close to just as bad as my Italian was. So I kind of felt good about that and a little proud. I admit it, I did. Now, at one point, Newland is going to give you a laundry list of artistic philosophers, thinkers, people who commented on art and wrote about art. And at the top of his list, and this isn't the first time this has come up, is Ruskin. John Ruskin, who was part of the aesthetic movement, which Oscar Wilde, if you've listened to Canterville Ghost, Oscar Wilde was eventually part of. John Ruskin, however, is a really interesting character to me. Because back in the mid to late 90s, I saw a play done at It started at Greenwich Street Theater and then it moved up onto Off-Broadway. And it was called The Countess. And if you ever have a chance to see this play, because I know it, it does kind of get around on the outskirts of things. If you ever have a chance to see this play, it is well worth it. Because it is, from Ruskin's wife's point of view, the story of her marriage to him. And this is really the most about John Ruskin that I know. Brilliant, sure. Great writer, absolutely. Really fantastic way of looking at and writing about art. No question. But when it came to interpersonal relationships, something wasn't right there. And I think it's probably too simplistic to just say, oh, well, he was probably gay and shouldn't have been married to a woman because it, it it seems to have kind of really surpassed that it wasn't kind of the the simple Oscar Wilde tragic story that that's that's too simple a story for what went on between Ruskin and Effie Effie his wife Effie Gray uh wow well worth looking into I put a link in the show notes Ruskin Ruskin was a pill. And so every time Ruskin shows up in any text now, for, since 1997 or 98, I cringe. I actually cringe because the taste that was left in my mouth after seeing, at least seeing her side of the story, and I know there's you know two sides to every story, but this is the part of the story that I knew. I just went, ooh, is how I went when I went like that. The happy end of the story is that Effie eventually was able to get the marriage annulled after quite some time. And she went off and had a happy marriage with, uh, with an, I think, an artist, um, Malay. So that part is great. But Ruskin, mm, I think the important thing to recognize is that Edith Wharton was writing this in 1920. And by that time, Ruskin's history was well known. And so she is not picking Ruskin. I cannot imagine that she is picking Ruskin casually as one of Newland Archer's heroes, 
when it comes to reading about art. Because Ruskin was, if nothing else, at the very least, incredibly repressed for all sorts of very legitimate and understandable reasons growing up during the Victorian era. I think depending on where you were and who you were and who your parents were, there was a certain amount of doom that was written across your ability to function as a happy, complete, and fully married adult. I think she's pulling Ruskin out over and over again with Newland purposefully. And it is to let us see how he sees art. Because when I think of the Italian art that I got to see when I was in Italy, there were lots of naked people and lots of chubby babies and lots of joy and love and sensuality. And all of this was on display everywhere we went. And that clearly is not Newland's world. So when he says Ellen has Italian art, but it's not art he's familiar with because he read Ruskin, I think, I really do think the writing is pretty much on the wall on that one. One of the other places you will hear about in New York City is where Newland and May are most likely going to live, and that's East 39th Street in the city. Now, I looked at a map, and at first I thought this was Gramercy Park, or the upper edge of Gramercy Park, which, again, if you haven't been to New York, Gramercy Park is this marvelous area in the city, which is really strangely still quite preserved. And if you go to Irving Street, you can still go to a pub where all sorts of famous writers went to. It's almost like going to the pub in Oxford, where J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis used to go every day. I think it's the, is it the Eagle and Child, I think? Someone will write in and correct me. I think it's the Eagle and Child. Well, Gramercy Park carries for Americans that same kind of literary weight. Lots of writers, lots of artists, lots of actors, all kind of hovered around this park, Gramercy Park. And if you are lucky enough or wealthy enough to have a place in one of the buildings touching on Gramercy Park, part of your rent or your mortgage will give you a key to the park. It's a private park. I had a friend who lived there in an apartment and I was able to go into Gramercy Park with her once and it was marvelous because you really do feel like this is so exclusive and it is so beautiful and it is this little haven in the middle of this little, rather quiet part of the city. And it's spectacular. The buildings that surround the park are still beautiful, and you really do kind of feel like you've stepped back in time. Well, Newland and May aren't going to live on Gramercy Park. They're going to be up a little ways in Murray Hill. As far as I can tell, it's always, you know, figuring out the logistics of the neighborhoods in New York City is always a little bit, like, reading tea leaves because the lines change somewhat. But I'm pretty sure this would have been Murray Hill. And that's interesting because that puts them in the same neighborhood as J.P. Morgan, because the J.P. Morgan Library is in Murray Hill. But we will have to rely on someone who is still living in the city to send us pictures of the stone that Newland Archer speaks of 
in this chapter. Not brownstone, but a different color stone. And I just have no memory of this. So someone is going to have to send us pictures because I've got nothing for you. You will hear the term attar of roses. I had not heard this. I had heard the word attar, but I never understood what it was connected to before. An attar of roses is an oil of roses. It's uh, made by a distillation process. So it's very pungent, very strong. And arctics for the winter were boots, rubber-based boots that buckled. And with no more than that, I am going to launch you into Chapter 9 of The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton, read to you by Brenta Dane. The Countess Olenska had said, After five. And at half after the hour, Newland Archer rang the bell of the peeling stucco house, with a giant wisteria throttling its feeble cast-iron balcony which she had hired far down West 23rd Street from the vagabond Medora. It was certainly a strange quarter to have settled in. Small dressmakers, bird stuffers, and people who wrote were her nearest neighbors, and farther down the disheveled street, Archer recognized a dilapidated wooden house at the end of a paved path in which a writer and journalist called Winsett whom he used to come across now and then, had mentioned that he lived. Winsett did not invite people to his house, but he had once pointed it out to Archer in the course of a nocturnal stroll, and the latter had asked himself with a little shiver if the humanities were so meanly housed in other capitals. Madame Olenska's own dwelling was redeemed from the same appearance only by a little more paint about the window frames. And as Archer mustered its modest front, he said to himself that the Polish count must have robbed her of her fortune, as well as of her illusions. The young man had spent an unsatisfactory day. He had lunched with the Wellens, hoping afterward to carry off May for a walk in the park. He wanted to have her to himself, to tell her how enchanting she had looked the night before, and how proud he was of her and to press her to hasten their marriage. But Mrs. Welland had firmly reminded him that the round of family visits was not half over, and when he hinted at advancing the date of the wedding, had raised reproachful eyebrows and sighed out, Twelve dozen of everything, hand-embroidered. Packed in the family landau, they rolled from one tribal doorstep to another. And Archer, when the afternoon's round was over, parted from his betrothed with the feeling that he had been shown off like a wild animal, cunningly trapped. He supposed that his readings in anthropology caused him to take such a coarse view of what was, after all, a simple and natural demonstration of family feeling. But when he remembered that the Wellens did not expect the wedding to take place till the following autumn— and pictured what his life would be until then, a dampness fell upon his spirit. Tomorrow, Mrs. Welland called after him, we'll do the Chiverses and the Dallases, and he perceived that she was going through their two families alphabetically, and that they were only in the first quarter of the alphabet. 
He had meant to tell May of the Countess Olenska's request, her command, rather, that he should call on her that afternoon, but in the brief moments when they were alone, he had had more pressing things to say. Besides, it struck him as a little absurd to allude to the matter. He knew that May most particularly wanted him to be kind to her cousin. Was it not that wish which had hastened the announcement of their engagement? It gave him an odd sensation to reflect that, but for the Countess's arrival, he might have been, if not still a free man, at least a man less irrevocably pledged. But May had willed it so, and he felt himself somehow relieved of further responsibility, and therefore at liberty, if he chose, to call on her cousin without telling her. As he stood on Madame Olenska's threshold, curiosity was his uppermost feeling. He was puzzled by the tone in which she had summoned him. He concluded that she was less simple than she seemed. The door was opened by a swarthy, foreign-looking maid with a prominent bosom under a gay neckerchief whom he vaguely fancied to be Sicilian. She welcomed him with all her white teeth, and answering his inquiries by a headshake of incomprehension, led him through the narrow hall into a low, firelit drawing-room. The room was empty, and she left him for an appreciable time to wonder whether he had gone to find her mistress, or whether she had not understood what he was there for, and thought it might be to wind the clocks, of which he perceived that the only visible specimen had stopped. He knew that the southern races communicated with each other in the language of pantomime, and was mortified to find her shrugs and smiles so unintelligible. At length she returned with a lamp, and Archer, having meanwhile put together a phrase out of Dante and Petrarch, evoked the answer, La signora e fiori, ma vera subito, which he took to mean, She's out, but you'll soon see. What he saw, meanwhile, with the help of the lamp, was the faded, shadowy charm of a room unlike any room he had known. He knew that the Countess Olenska had brought some of her possessions with her, bits of wreckage, she called them, and these, he supposed, were represented by some small, slender tables of dark wood, a delicate little Greek bronze on the chimney-piece, and a stretch of red damask, nailed to the discolored wallpaper behind a couple of Italian-looking pictures in old frames. Newland Archer prided himself on his knowledge of Italian art. His boyhood had been saturated with Ruskin, and he had read all the latest books—John Addington Simmons, Vernon Lee's Euphorian, the essays of P. G. Hammerton, and a wonderful new volume called The Renaissance by Walter Pater— he talked easily of Botticelli, and spoke of Father Angelica with a faint condescension. But these pictures bewildered him, for they were like nothing that he was accustomed to look at, and, therefore, able to see, when he traveled in Italy. And perhaps, also, his powers of observation were impaired by the oddness of finding himself in this strange, empty house, where apparently no one expected him. He was sorry that he had not told May Welland of Countess Olenska's request, 
and a little disturbed by the thought that his betrothed might come in to see her cousin. What would she think if she found him sitting there with the air of intimacy implied by waiting alone in the dusk at a lady's fireside? But since he had come, he meant to wait, and he sank into a chair and stretched his feet to the logs. It was odd to have summoned him in that way and then forgotten him, but Archer felt more curious than mortified. The atmosphere of the room was so different from any he had ever breathed that self-consciousness vanished in the sense of adventure. He had been before in drawing rooms hung with red damask, with pictures of the Italian school. What struck him was the way in which Medora Manson's shabby hired house, with its blighted background of pompous grass and Roger's statuettes, had, by a turn of the hand, and the skillful use of a few properties, been transformed into something intimate, foreign, subtly suggestive of old romantic scenes and sentiments. He tried to analyze the trick, to find a clue to it in the way the chairs and tables were grouped, in the fact that only two Jacques Minot roses, of which nobody ever bought less than a dozen, had been placed in the slender vase at his elbow, and in the vague, pervading perfume that was not what one put on handkerchiefs, but rather like the scent of some far-off bazaar, a smell made up of Turkish coffee and ambergris and dried roses. His mind wandered away to the question of what May's drawing room would look like. He knew that Mr. Welland, who was behaving very handsomely, already had his eye on a newly built house in East 39th Street. The neighborhood was thought remote, and the house was built in a ghastly greenish-yellow stone that the younger architects were beginning to employ as a protest against the brownstone of which the uniform hue coated New York like a cold chocolate sauce. But the plumbing was perfect. Archer would have liked to travel, to put off the housing question, but, though the Wellens approved of an extended European honeymoon, perhaps even a winter in Egypt— they were firm as to the need of a house for the returning couple. The young man felt that his fate was sealed, and for the rest of his life he would go up every evening between the cast-iron railings of that greenish-yellow doorstep and pass through a Pompeian vestibule into a hall with wainscoting of varnished yellow wood. But beyond that his imagination could not travel. He knew the drawing-room above had a bay window, but he could not fancy how May would deal with it. She submitted cheerfully to the purple satin and yellow tuftings of the Welland drawing-room, to its shamboule tables and gilt vitrines full of modern sacks. He saw no reason to suppose that she would want anything different in her own house, and his only comfort was to reflect that she would probably let him arrange his library as he pleased which would be, of course, with sincere East Lake furniture and the plain new bookcases without glass doors. The young, round-bosomed maid came in, drew the curtains, pushed back a log, and said consolingly, Vera, Vera. When she had gone, Archer stood up and began to wander about. Should he wait any longer? His position was becoming rather foolish. 
Perhaps he had misunderstood Madame Olenska. Perhaps she had not invited him after all. Down the cobblestones of the quiet street came the ring of a stepper's hoofs. They stopped before the house, and he caught the opening of a carriage door. Parting the curtains, he looked out into the early dusk. A street lamp faced him, and in its light he saw Julius Beaufort's compact English broom, drawn by a big roan, and the banker descending from it in helping out Madame Olenska. Beaufort stood, hat in hand, saying something which his companion seemed to negative. Then they shook hands, and he jumped into his carriage while she mounted the steps. When she entered the room, she showed no surprise at seeing Archer there. Surprise seemed the emotion that she was least addicted to. How do you like my funny house? she asked. To me, it's like heaven. As she spoke, she untied her little velvet bonnet, and, tossing it away with her long cloak, stood looking at him with meditative eyes. "'You've arranged it delightfully,' he rejoined, alive to the flatness of the words, but imprisoned in the conventional by his consuming desire to be simple and striking. "'Oh, it's a poor little place. My relations despise it. But at any rate, it's less gloomy than the Vanderloydens.' The words gave him an electric shock, for few were the rebellious spirits who would have dared to call the stately home of the Vanderloydens gloomy. Those privileged to enter it shivered there and spoke of it as handsome. But suddenly he was glad that she had given voice to the general shiver. It's delicious what you've done here, he repeated. I like the little house, she admitted, but I suppose what I like is the blessedness of its being here, in my own country and in my own town, and then of being alone in it. She spoke so low that he hardly heard the last phrase, but in his awkwardness he took it up. You like so much to be alone? Yes, as long as my friends keep me from feeling lonely. She sat down near the fire and said, Nastasia will bring the tea presently and signed to him to return to his armchair, adding, I see you've already chosen your corner. Leaning back, she folded her arms behind her head and looked at the fire under drooping lids. This is the hour I like best, don't you? A proper sense of dignity caused him to answer, I was afraid you had forgotten the hour. Beaufort must have been very engrossing. She looked amused. Why, have you waited long? Mr. Beaufort took me to see a number of houses, since it seems I'm not to be allowed to stay in this one. She appeared to dismiss both Beaufort and himself from her mind, and went on, I've never been in a city where there seems to be such a feeling against living in des quartiers eccentriques. What does it matter where one lives? I'm told this street is respectable. It's not fashionable. Fashionable? Do you all think so much of that? Why not make one's own fashions? But I suppose I've lived too independently. At any rate, I want to do what you all do. I want to feel cared for and safe. He was touched, as he had been the evening before when she spoke of her need of guidance. That's what your friends want to feel. New York's an awfully safe place, he added with a flash of sarcasm. 
Yes, isn't it? One feels that, she cried, missing the mockery. Being here is like... like being taken on a holiday when one has been a good little girl and done all one's lessons. The analogy was meant well, but did not altogether please him. He did not mind being flippant about New York, but disliked to hear anyone else take the same tone. He wondered if she did not begin to see what a powerful engine it was and how nearly it had crushed her. The Lovell Mingott's dinner, patched up in extremis out of all sorts of social odds and ends, ought to have taught her the narrowness of her escape. But either she had been all along unaware of having skirted disaster, or else she had lost sight of it in the triumph of the Vanderloyden evening. Archer inclined to the former theory. He fancied that her New York was still completely undifferentiated, and the conjecture nettled him. Last night, he said, New York laid itself out for you. The Vanderloydens do nothing by halves. No, how kind they are. It was such a nice party. Everyone seems to have such an esteem for them. The terms were hardly adequate. She might have spoken in that way of a tea party, at the dear old Miss Lanning's. The Vanderloydens, said Archer, feeling himself pompous as he spoke, are the most powerful influence in New York society. Unfortunately, owing to her health, they receive very seldom. She unclasped her hands from behind her head and looked at him meditatively. Isn't that perhaps the reason? The reason? For their great influence that they make themselves so rare. He colored a little, stared at her, and suddenly felt the penetration of the remark. At a stroke, she had pricked the Vanderloydens and they collapsed. He laughed and sacrificed them. Nastasia brought the tea with handleless Japanese cups and little covered dishes, placing the tray on a low table. But you'll explain these things to me. You'll tell me all I ought to know, Madame Olenska continued, leaning forward to hand him his cup. It's you who are telling me, opening my eyes to things I'd looked at so long that I'd ceased to see them. She detached a small gold cigarette case from one of her bracelets, held it out to him, and took a cigarette herself. On the chimney were long spills for lighting them. Ah, then we can both help each other. But I want help so much more. You must tell me just what to do. It was on the tip of his tongue to reply, Don't be seen driving about the streets with Beaufort. But he was being too deeply drawn into the atmosphere of the room, which was her atmosphere. And to give advice of that sort would have been like telling someone who was bargaining for an attar of roses in Samarkand that one should always be provided with arctics for a New York winter. New York seemed much farther off than Samarkand, and if they were indeed to help each other, she was rendering what might prove the first of their mutual services by making him look at his native city objectively. Viewed thus, as through the wrong end of a telescope, it looked disconcertingly small and distant. But then, from Samarkand, it would... A flame darted from the logs and she bent over the fire, stretching her thin hands so close to it 
that a faint halo shone about the oval nails. The light touched to russet the rings of dark hair escaping from her braids and made her pale face paler. There are plenty of people to tell you what to do, Archer rejoined, obscurely envious of them. Oh, all my aunts and my dear old granny? She considered the idea impartially. They're all a little vexed with me for setting up for myself. Poor granny, especially. She wanted to keep me with her, but I had to be free. He was impressed by this light way of speaking of the formidable Catherine, and moved by the thought of what must have given Madame Olenska this thirst for even the loneliest kind of freedom. But the idea of Beaufort gnawed at him. I think I understand how you feel, he said. Still, your family can advise you, explain the differences, show you the way. She lifted her thin black eyebrows. Is New York such a labyrinth? I thought it so straight up and down, like Fifth Avenue, and with all the cross streets numbered. She seemed to guess his faint disapproval of this, and added with the rare smile that enchanted her whole face, If you knew how I like it just for that, the straight up and downness, and the big honest labels on everything. He saw his chance. Everything may be labeled, but everybody is not. Perhaps I may simplify too much, but you'll warn me if I do. She turned from the fire to look at him. There are only two people here who make me feel as if they understood what I mean and could explain things to me. You and Mr. Beaufort. Archer winced at the joining of the names, and then, with a quick readjustment, understood, sympathized, and pitied. So close to the powers of evil, she must have lived that she still breathed more freely in their air. But since she felt that he understood her also, his business would be to make her see Beaufort as he really was, with all he represented, and abhor it. He answered gently, I understand, but just at first... Don't let go of your old friend's hands. I mean the older women. Your Granny Mingott, Mrs. Welland, Mrs. Vanderloyden. They like and admire you. They want to help you. Oh, I know, I know. But on condition that they don't hear anything unpleasant. Aunt Welland put it in those very words when I tried. Does no one want to know the truth here, Mr. Archer? The real loneliness is living among all these kind people who only ask one to pretend. She lifted her hands to her face and he saw her thin shoulders shaken by a sob. Madame Olenska, oh, don't, Ellen, he cried, starting up and bending over her. He drew down one of her hands, clasping and chafing it like a child's, while he murmured reassuring words. But in a moment she freed herself and looked up at him with wet lashes. Does no one cry here either? I suppose there's no need to in heaven, she said, straightening her loosened braids with a laugh and bending over the tea kettle. 
It was burnt into his consciousness that he had called her Ellen, called her so twice, and that she had not noticed it. Far down the inverted telescope he saw the faint white figure of May Welland in New York. Suddenly Nastasia put her head in to say something in her rich Italian. Madame Olenska, again, again with a hand at her hair, uttered an exclamation of assent, a flashing chia, chia, and the Duke of St. Austria entered, piloting a tremendous black-wigged and red-plumed lady in overflowing furs. My dear Countess, I've brought an old friend of mine to see you, Mrs. Struthers. She wasn't asked to the party last night, and she wants to know you. The Duke beamed on the group, and Madame Olenska advanced with a murmur of welcome towards the queer couple. She seemed to have no idea how oddly matched they were or what a liberty the Duke had taken in bringing his companion. And to do him justice, as Archer perceived, the Duke seemed as unaware of it himself. "'Of course I want to know you, my dear,' cried Mrs. Struthers in a round, rolling voice that matched her bold feathers and her brazen wig. "'I want to know everyone who's young and interesting and charming. "'And the Duke tells me you like music, didn't you, Duke? "'You're a pianist yourself, I believe. "'Well, do you want to hear Sarasate play tomorrow evening at my house? "'You know I've something going on every Sunday evening. "'It's the day when New York doesn't know what to do with itself, "'and so I say to it, Come and be amused. And the Duke thought you'd be tempted by Sarasate. You'll find a number of your friends. Madame Olenska's face grew brilliant with pleasure. How kind, how good of the Duke to think of me. She pushed a chair up to the tea table, and Mrs. Struthers sank into it delectably. Of course I shall be too happy to come. That's all right, my dear, and bring your young gentleman with you. Mrs. Struthers extended a hail-fellow hand to Archer. I can't put a name to you, but I'm sure I've met you. I've met everybody here or in Paris or London. Aren't you in diplomacy? All the diplomatists come to me. You'll like music, too. Duke, you must be sure to bring him. The Duke said, rather, from the depths of his beard, and Archer withdrew with a stiffly circular bow that made him feel as full of spine as a self-conscious schoolboy among careless and unnoticing elders. He was not sorry for the denouement of his visit, he only wished it had come sooner, and spared him a certain waste of emotion. As he went out into the wintry night, New York again became vast and imminent, and May Welland, the loveliest woman in it. He turned into his florists to send her the daily box of lilies of the valley, which, to his confusion, he found he had forgotten that morning. As he wrote a word on his card and waited for an envelope, he glanced about the embowered shop and his eye lit on a cluster of yellow roses. He had never seen any as sun-golden before, and his first impulse was to send them to May instead of the lilies. But they did not look like her. There was something too rich, too strong in their fiery beauty. In a sudden revulsion of mood, and almost without knowing what he did, he signed to the florist to lay the roses in another long box and slipped his card into a second envelope, on which he wrote the name of the Countess Olenska. Then, just as he was turning away, he drew the card out again and left the empty envelope on the box.
They'll go at once, he inquired, pointing to the roses. The florist assured him that they would. End of chapter 9 So, Newland, what you doing? Sending flowers secretly to Ellen Alenska? I know. We'll find out more about that in the next chapter. The Duke. The Duke, to me, is really an interesting kind of revelation in this chapter. Because we've already heard how the van der Leidens are kind of stuffy about him. And I think it's just marvelous, this kind of, well, he's nice and all, but he's not really people like us. You know, because New York society is so much better. And and I love... I love that he brings this woman who is clearly on the déclassé side for Newland Archer, but who is so loving and generous and welcoming to Ellen. And even says, you know, I'm sure you're going to see lots of your friends there, people who Ellen met in Europe. And in Europe, it was just fine. And they were welcomed and entertained and feted and part of her life, not feted, F-E-T-I-D, but F-E-T-E. And I, I am reminded of these moments in my life. There haven't been many, but there have been a few, and they have been significant, where I was just seriously not in my element, outclassed, outmoneyed, outdressed, out everything. And the only thing I had going for me was pretty much a sense of humor and a kind of fearless stupidity. And at the time, I had hoped that my sense of humor and my ability to be basically a nice person would help carry me through. And it certainly got me through those moments, but in retrospect, I always felt that <laughs> the, the larger reaction was one of pity. Yeah, oh, the poor thing. She doesn't have money. She doesn't have a social standing. And the poor thing thinks that by being nice, she'll get somewhere. And while Ellen has the social standing, sort of, she no longer has the money. She has an enormous blot on her record. And really, the only thing standing between her and utter personal devastation is the fact that her granny Mingit has backed her publicly. And, and there is that part of me that feels so much like a kid in high school or a kid going through sorority rush again that feels that kind of palpable, horrible, out-of-your-control pain on the part of Ellen. But at the same time, because Edith Wharton is such a good writer, I feel worse for Newland. Because to have grown up in a world where someone who is as marvelously open and pleasing to be around as Ellen... To, to be in a position where that isn't desirable 
I mean, what kind of future are you looking at for yourself? What kind of prison have you been raised in? I know MK was saying earlier this week on Facebook that she had read this book before and she just wanted to kick everybody in the shins. And I can absolutely identify with that impulse because for me, it's not just kicking Newland and May and Ellen in the shins. It's kicking the whole society in the shins that I want to do. And I, I really have a sneaking suspicion that Edith Wharton is right there with us wanting to kick everyone in the shins. But again, remembering that she was writing this right at the end of World War I. She's really making it very clear that watching something like Downton Abbey and enjoying it, we need to make sure we have our beer goggles off when we do that. She wants to make sure that we can look back with 2020 hindsight and see what this world that we've left really was and what it really did to people. And uh, it, all of the conversations about Downton Abbey that I've seen online of you know, people in praise of it and people who are decrying it and people who are saying, oh, you're just watching that because it was so much easier than because everyone had a place, which of course is code for let's live in a classed society again. I really do get the feeling that Edith Wharton would have been right there in the mix saying, yeah, you need to be really clear on what those good old days really looked like, at least for people with money and position. Everything's different if you're not part of that classed world. But I, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, I'd, I've been lucky enough to meet some people who really truly are rich by anyone's standards, ridiculously filthy rich. And their lives are not easy or happy or free or relaxed. Because how can you possibly trust anyone who you haven't known forever? And quite honestly, even the people who you have known forever, how do you know what their motives are? How can you, how can you possibly know if you're that wealthy? It puts a whole new wrinkle on how to navigate life. And it's one that we're going to continue to watch Newland try to navigate through the rest of the book. Ooh, and talk about squeaking in on a deadline. I got, right before I published this, a comment on episode 305, so our first episode of The Age of Innocence. And this is from uh, Gemma. And she says, okay, I'm a couple of episodes behind where you are, but the use of flowers in this episode really grabbed me. It may be just that I'm a bit obsessed with scented flowers at the moment. Newland and May both wear a gardenia, and May carries a bouquet of Lily of the Valley. Both flowers are white and scented, but very different. A quick internet search on the language of flowers, although this may have just been a British thing, I don't know, brought up something interesting. One of the interpretations of Gardenia is secret love. That both Newland and May are wearing one suggests to me that he sent her the Gardenia as a hint about their as yet unannounced engagement. The interpretations of Lily of the Valley tend towards sweetness and humility. I wonder who would have bought these for May, given the amount of blushing she does in this episode. 
It seems that the sender may have been May herself, or someone who understands her better than Archer does. That said, it may have been Archer. Lily of the Valley is apparently the traditional French love token. My own experience of gardenias having tried in vain to keep one alive on my windowsill is that they are extremely high maintenance and, in my view, much showier than Lily of the Valleys, which, by all accounts, is a lot simpler. Newland seems to be quite high maintenance and showy himself, hence his desire to broadcast his engagement in front of all of old New York society. Whether May is, in common with her Lily of the Valley, as ostentatious herself, remains to be seen. I thought this was perfect timing, since in this chapter we learn that the Lilies of the Valley are being sent every day by Newland, not a standing order, but an order that he has to go and place. And I can totally concur with Gemma on the gardenia thing, because I worked at the Renaissance Fair in Southern California many, many moons ago as a gardenia seller. They smell very good, which of course was great if you were living in a time where nobody had deodorant, but they wilt really, really fast in the heat once they're cut. I could only imagine how delicate and difficult they are to grow and grow well. So, flowers definitely play a part. It's one of the reasons why Catherine Barbosa's pendants are what they are. And, um, and don't forget to go and sign up for the raffle so you might get a pendant. Take care. Have a great week. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlit.com, just-the-books.com, or via our Android or iPhone app. You can also use the free Craftlit app to access premium subscriber content. Just the Books and Craftlit are made possible by the support of our listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one.